to Discography, the music podcast that delivers the objective truth about the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever existed. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and if you're tuning in for the first time, ask yourself this. Do you think most modern discussions about music lack a certain fire and perspective? If the answer is yes, then welcome home. Please join our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. We're on Instagram and Twitter too, but the Facebook group is home. Home of artists, writers, filmmakers, musicians, you name it. Lots of unbelievably talented sons of bitches in there. My recommendation, if you like what you hear, is to join the group. Then while you're at it, join up on the rest of the platforms too. Then, please, rate the podcast five stars, along with a beautifully worded review, especially if you're on Apple or Spotify. Uh, Also on uh, Podchaser, it'll help a lot. On whatever platform you do call home, you'll be privy to a never-ending flow of ongoing bonus content, giveaways, free swag, and encouraging words of wisdom on how to never, ever give up on your rock and roll dreams of maintaining a Lester Bangs-like perspective deep into adulthood. And if you're like me and enough's just never enough, then you just stepped in shit, my friends. Visit patreon.com slash discograffiti and become one of our Patreon soldiers of sound. Our Patreon feed is the last word in deep dive music obsession. No joke. Find me anything more musically immersive and I'll live stream me boiling and eating my pandemic era shoes. There are multiple tiers available at $5, 10 20 30 and $40 a month through which to gain entry to the psychedelically mind-melting music funhouse of Discography's Patreon. Find the most expensive one that's right for you so we can keep this thing owned and operated by us and for us. At 5 bucks a month, you're a private first class. You realize the value of the show and appreciate the insane amount of work that goes into each episode. And you better believe just a few bucks a month helps. It helps a lot, actually. So thank you. In addition, we'll soon be offering only our more recent episodes free of charge. But five clams will be enough to secure you access to the entire goods. At 10 bucks a month, you're a lieutenant. You get access to a plethora of in-depth guest interviews, very special episodes, call-in episodes, battle royale debates, choice extras from the main episodes, and any additional content that doesn't fit the format, but rates as equally indispensable. At 20 bucks a month, you're a major. Not only all the other goodies from the preceding two tiers, but you get access to the Big Mama Kahuna, Discography's private press featuring Paul Major. If you don't know him, Paul is the greatest private press record collector of all time and leader of the thunderously awesome band Endless Boogie. And he'll be introducing you and I to a brand new incredible record you've almost definitely never heard of every single week, along with personal tales of tracking these folk down that rocket his recommendations into another category entirely. No joke here. Miss at your own risk. At 30 bucks a month, you're a colonel. Access to participate in our special call-in episodes, plus all the rest. At 40 bucks a month, you're a brigadier general. You get to actually help choose the bands the show covers and the special guests that cover them all. And yes, I know what you're thinking. Is there a $1,000 tier, Dave? The answer is yes. And just like that bottle of Louis XIV sitting back there behind the bar, you can either afford that shit or you can't. Curious? 
Visit patreon.com slash discograffiti, scroll down to Major General, and have yourself a look-see. Okay, back to the free shit. Don't forget, the link to our legendary playlist is in the show notes and also on our website at discograffiti.com. This is an invaluable resource if, like me, you just hate listening to shitty songs. Lastly, but not leastly, a heartfelt discography thanks goes out to Joe Cravino, Todd Zimmer, and my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, without whose invaluable help and or morale-boosting energy, I'd be 100% dead in the water. I can't thank you enough. I care too much about this show to be easy to deal with. So also, I'm sorry. Okay, back to business. First things first, you guys need to know just how seriously we take this craziness. I'm Joe Kennedy. Discography is heavily researched, and the music is always reassessed with fresh ears. And we are not just covering albums. No, that is the province of the Johnny-come-latelys of the universe. We do a searingly honest deep-dive analysis of EPs, singles, comp tracks, on and on. You name it, we do it. All releases are slapped with an objective rating from zero to five stars. Which allows us all to come face-to-face with the true shape of an artist's overall arc. On today's show, we are resuming our discussion about the career of the fascinating Marvin Gaye. We are re-spraying the spray cans. (laughs) That's right. We're spraying, (laughs) dousing him once again with spray. Uh, Marvin Gaye's Supper Club Smoothie turned Fallen Angel snorting toot off a hooker's tuchus. Our guest this evening has written novels, biographies, magazine articles, and over 100 liner notes. He's actually co-authored 36 biographies, including Rage to Survive, The Etta James Story, Blues All Around Me, the autobiography of B.B. King, The Brothers Neville uh, with the Neville Brothers, and True You, A Journey to Finding and Loving Yourself with Janet Jackson. Most importantly, with regard to tonight's episode, Divided Soul, The Life of Marvin Gaye, began when our guest met Marvin Gaye in the late 70s and was published in 1985. And of course, most mind-blowingly, the platinum-selling song Sexual Healing was written in Belgium in April 1982 by Marvin Gaye, Odell Brown, and our man on the hot seat tonight. A friend of tonight's artist from 1978 to his death in 1984, he may be white on the outside, but the man has earned his black bona fides and then some, Lads and ladies of Discography City, please welcome David Ritz. Hey, that was a hell of an introduction. Well, you deserve <laughs> it and then some, frankly. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. <laughs> very cool to have you on today. Um, and I'm happy to be here. Such a great, uh, uh, all this period of Marvin's career is really endlessly fascinating. Yeah, it really is. And, and uh, honestly, no better person to talk about it than, than yourself for so many reasons. But uh, I want to know, uh, you know, right off the bat, what Marvin Gaye uh, means to you in the year 2022, the way you see things now as the men you are today? Well, you know, I mean, I, um, I, I guess the first thing I have to say is that um, I um, listen to him all the time. I mean, I, I, I heard him as a teenager with the early hits and I kind of fell in love with those hits and then what's going on, uh, destroyed me and I, I, I uh, astounded me and then I loved Trouble Man and I loved Let's Get It On and I Want You and um, Here My Dear. So I, it, it's so, it's... so you're at that point... By, I'm a fan. I mean, I yeah. mean... I, I, you're running I for mean, Rolling Stone and you get right. to cross paths with them. 
what's that initial uh, meeting? What's that? Well, like? actually, that's the reason, the way we met. I was, uh, I, I was obsessed with him before we met, and um, and he with you, I presume. Uh, no, no, he had. <laughs> I don't think he. Had uh, well, actually, it turned out that he had, but I didn't sort of know it. But any, anyway, the story is this. Um, he puts out here, my dear, um, it gets panned by critics, a guy in the LA times panned it. I wrote a letter to the LA times, uh, saying I thought it was a brilliant work comparable to Ellington and, uh, Charlie Mingus and Stevie, uh, wonder my hope was that Marvin would, would, um, see the, um, uh, what I had written to the newspaper. He did. We talked, he, in invited me to the studio and it turned out he had read the Ray Charles autobiography that I had um, ghostwritten. And so that was it. That's all it took. And uh, from the time we met, um, you know, we had good chemistry and he was incredibly charming and um, kind what, of. What, what uh, do you remember the day, the day or at least the no. month and year? Okay. What, what month and year was that? Is that well, 78? Yeah, must have been um, uh, probably the spring of 1978, um, uh, and um, I didn't really understand what was going on in his in his um, life at the time. Uh, um, uh, I was kind of naive. I kind of thought his uh, marriage was in good shape because uh, here, my dear, ends with falling in love again, which is a right love song to his um wife number two who is um jan gay and i didn't understand that they had broken up and that the high drama was um still ongoing um but i got um into his um world uh you know meeting his um sisters and his brother and his mom and his dad and 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 um as is usually the case with me when i start to work on a book uh i'm all in and and um you know um and you can hear the art and 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 we can go back and talk about this in certain work but you can hear the art and get the impression that you understand the artist but then when you meet the artist you understand yeah. that there's a great discrepancy between the art and the artist and that discrepancy that kind of distance between what Marvin created and who Marvin was um, held me uh, spellbound for years. And by the way, still holds me uh, spellbound. Well, I mean, you know, as somebody who, who is an artist in his own right, and, yeah. and myself as well, have been making films, I know a right. lot of what I make is, uh, you know, portraying aspects of myself that I myself in my life could never be. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, that obviously was a thing here, but... Uh, no, no, and I completely agree with that. There, yeah. there is um, Marvin the artist and Marvin the person, and they're two different people, and yet they're constantly intersecting. Yeah. And, 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 and those are the points. Those points of intersection are the points that are um, so interesting. I, I will say that if it wasn't for for Marvin Gaye, that uh, who knows if Prince would have stumbled on the God and se and sex duality. He may have had to have looked for a different duality. 
Well, I'm not sure. I think that duality has been there um, in uh, metaphysical English poetry. Yeah, that goes way back. You know, hundred and hundred years ago. So, but, 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 yes. But not, not really in funk, though. That's right. Not in the world of R and B and funk, and 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 Marvin did kind of articulate it in a, a way that hadn't been articulated before and also why i like your prince uh analogy also it didn't be devil other artists the way it bedeviled marvin and prince in other words both those guys felt it felt as though it was either or they were literally and bedeviled I mean, marvin's kind of yeah. unique in the in the r&b world especially at the time being such a confessional songwriter yeah um yeah. you know it's, it's it's he's giving a lot of himself even if maybe sometimes it might be self-serving or might be idealized but he's he's very heart on sleeve um mm -hmm. kind of songwriter. Well, I completely right and i completely agree with you and i think that's his great um or at least one of his great contributions which is to to go against the kind of uh, normal template of R and P of R and B story. Even even and... Sly, who was doing uh, you know very confessional stuff, his th his sentiments were kind of coming out sideways through PCP. Uh, yeah. Marvin was couldn't. Help In Marvin's it. case, it's very direct. Um, yeah, you yeah. Know, there there are some con there are some albums that are concept albums about just being as nakedly sh sharing that kind of things as possible. You know, so it's. Um, well, yeah, let's, we'll we'll get into the specifics, but I want to I want to launch here with uh, you know we've gone through two phases of Marvin's career uh, already, or at least uh, here on Discography, what we've deemed the two phases. Phase yeah. three now we begin a new one, Super Starvin' Gay, nineteen seventy to nineteen seventy four. Uh, now we're going to do a segment that we like to that we like to call the run up, where it gets us to the first release as quickly as possible. So it, just to bring everyone up to up to snuff on what's going on, it is the end of the sixties. Marvin Gaye has fallen into a deep depression. And by the way, David. Please yes. jump in and correct me if you think I am spouting any kind of historical okay. inaccuracy. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> um, so Tammy Terrell's brain tumor diagnosis, uh, we have the failure of his marriage to Anna Gordy, or at least the crumbling thereof. The beginnings, really. Of yeah. That, yeah. Uh, shitloads of cocaine, IRS trouble, and disagreements with Motown, uh, who he'd signed with uh, in 1961. Uh, he'd even attempted suicide with a handgun, only to be saved by Pops Gordy. Uh, so Gay, at this point, starts to experience more success with I Heard It Through the Grapevine. He feels like he's not deserving of the, su the success. He feels like a puppet, Barry's puppet, Anna's puppet. Uh, he felt, quote, I had a mind of my own and I wasn't using it. So March 1970, Terrell dies of a brain tumor. Uh, this has a huge impact on him. He refuses to perform on stage for years. Um, in January 1970, that's the way love is comes out, which to my uh, nubile ears uh, is a massive regression for him uh, artistically, but um, uh, he refuses to promote things. He, uh, he pulls a Beatles Let It Be and grows out a beard uh, and then actually talks to Barry Gordy about doing a protest record and Gordy just flat out chastises him that he's being ridiculous. Um, so there's one more kind of stopgap stop product to mark time uh, before Marvin gets to break boundaries behind closed doors, and that is 
1970s, that's the way love is. Yeah, so this one to me seems like it's obviously, you know, it's, it's like you're saying, it's kind of a uh, stopgap kind of record. Um, it's can, for some reason this one doesn't really fire on all the cylinders, despite the fact that he's got still got the A team of you know, Norman Whitfield is working on it. He's got all the Funk Brothers guys. Um, there are kind of a few cool things on it, but it, it's just so miles away from what he was about to do um, shortly thereafter. I mean, well, it, yeah. What, what's your take on this? Thing? Yeah, I don't agree in that. I just um, think it's super funky. I, I, I love all the Norman Whitfield Marvin stuff because there was so much antagonism between Marvin and um, Whit, um, and they get in there, and uh, uh, Whit would have uh, the tune in a key that made it impossible for Marvin to <laughs> sing, and Marvin would sing it anyway, and and <laughs> and. So I think that wasn't whole, that the foundation of Grapevine success though was trying to yeah, push his yeah, register. Yeah. yeah, and also Grapevine is has audio, even though it wasn't written by Marvin, um, it had autobiographical uh, resonance for Marvin because you know um, Anna he encouraged Anna to cheat on him and um, he cheated on her and and so it had all that kind of personal stuff that he can put into but but I, I i don't really and this may get into a deeper discussion about the notion of musical criticism or literary criticism but i don't like hierarchies i mean i i because comparisons tend to um rank and um you you know there's a winner and a loser and and i think the norman whitfield marvin period um is is very very intense there's the, 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 the stuff <laughs> I, interesting the things i like on this the, my, my favorite thing on the whole record is uh his, yes. his version of yesterday which i, yeah, I, I which really i love yeah. that a lot that's yeah, really yeah. uh it's this it's the second best if not best version of yesterday that i think i've huh. ever heard it, there's really this album really just kind of when i heard it i heard it the one time so you know i for whatever reason david like i had told you yeah. previously um you know from 61 to, for, for the next 10 years, I wasn't, except for the big singles, wasn't really very familiar with his stuff. And this kind of felt like the commercial equivalent of a, of a 10 minute Vegas medley that packs a slew of unrelated hits uh, together. Yeah. It didn't, it just didn't, it, it felt like, um, like he was so intensely at work on what was coming up that maybe he had people help assemble this for him or something. Yeah. Well, and it, you know, it's got, um you know he covers i wish it would uh yeah yeah that's my other that's my and, other favorite and, one and that was a brave thing to do because he had huge respect for um um david uh ruffin who you know sang the um shit out of it and yeah. and, and roger um, penzabine right yeah and, and 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 you know it's got abraham martin and john which is you know the dion song which to me has always been a little cheesy but but that's but got I, that's got great james jamerson on it though it's great on that yeah that's the way love is it it's always kind of uh felt to me in a um to have more intensity here on discography david we value uh you know we value all kinds of stark opposition so i'm so <laughs> grateful that we're the two of us usually like uh, the two of us usually agree with each okay, other so way number, too much number one you hate hierarchies and this is a star rating based show <laughs> number two it's starting off with 
what I think is his worst album and you love it. So already I'm in love with this episode. I give it one star. <laughs> I give this, this album to me, I give it two. Um, I could, I, I could maybe be talking to two and a half. You know, the thing about Marvin's records is even at their, you know, th this one seems like they kind of like, it's another one kind of that came out in the Motown system that, you know, they kind of put yeah. the assembly line, put it out. But he's, right. you know, the, the sound that comes out of his mouth is so magical that all right. of his records have a kind of a floor to them, where they all have like good things about them because the man is singing. He's right. one of the best yeah. and, singers and that and ever also, lived. And also, um, as we move from this to what's going on, it's obvious, you know, this is a hodgepodge. Right. And, yeah. And he isn't a sort of mastermind behind the album. Um, and they're putting together a lot of things that are coming from different, uh, you know, it's kind of uh, um, disparate. And so, yeah, I don't, as a work, as an album, it's an, it's an artifact. It's an artificial compilation that doesn't have a um, storyline. Right, it's not it. conceived and as an right. album, really. In but, that regard, yeah. I but, agree with you guys. Yeah. But yeah. yeah, so, you know, uh, you know, in a very different uh, strain of thinking for him creatively, uh, you know, in an interview with Rolling Stone, Marvin said, in 1969 or 1970, I began to reevaluate my whole concept of what I wanted my music to say. I was very much affected by letters my brother was sending me from yeah. Vietnam, as well as the social situation here at home. I realized that I had to put my own fantasies behind me if I wanted to write songs that would reach the souls of people. I wanted them to take a look at what was happening in the world. June 1st, 1970, he walks into uh, Motown's Hitsville, USA Studios to record what's going on. Yeah. This is um, a pretty big turning point in his career, <laughs> I'd say. It's, it's, you know, it's a, it's, you know, it is a big turning point. Um, it, it, it's important to remember because one thing um, about Marvin that makes him um, that makes Marvin Marvin is that lots of times his initial stimulation is coming from other people. Um, and you know the story about what's going on was not initially his idea. Um, right. So, so, um, and that becomes true with um, uh, Let's Get It On, which he did with Ed Townsend, becomes true of I Want You, which he did with Leon, Leon where yeah. um, um, you got to go to hear My Dear to really um, uh, get to a Marvin Gaye album that's completely um, self. Um, yeah, but arguably um, it's the ultimate collaboration. It's Anna's all over that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, but yes, but she is and she isn't. Once Marvin, who who would be the first guy to tell you, was sort of um, lazy in his own way. I mean, he it took him a lot to get into the studio. It wasn't like Prince yeah, yeah. Stevie, who's doing, you know, hundreds of songs over and over and over and over again. Marvin is really trying hard to um, work his way out of a what is really a life-threatening depression. I mean, he's about to um, turn it all in. And, and, and I think that um, it's ultimately art um, that comes, that, that, that art saves his life. Right. And, and, and I think that um, because he didn't, he 
wasn't about to go to a um, psychologist. Um, that was never, uh, he didn't have the humility or... Yeah, there was kind of a stigma around it at the time, more, way yeah. more so than now. Plus, he was smoking so much. Well, he was smoking a lot of weed and drinking a lot of booze, right at this time. Or, well, I don't, I don't. I, I mean, Marvin always liked to smoke weed. I never saw as, as much of a boozer, um, uh, but I never saw him when he was not high on weed. And of course, I <laughs> yeah, was also yeah. high on weed at the time uh, that we met. But the key is. Um, really this um song and track that was written by obi of of uh, the four tops and al um cleveland and they had written a song called what's going on now it wasn't the exact it didn't have the same form of the song that we know because marvin had a way of sort of uh marvinizing everything right uh, but 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 those but those two lead vocal takes that are that are kind of going along parallel tracks on that uh was really just supposed to be queued up by steve smith and kenneth sands the uh the engineers uh just for sort of uh side by side comparison and it just wound up being talk about happy accident because that uh, that became the sound of the whole record that became sort of a, a you know, stake in the ground in his career well, I mean, that part is true, but, you know, ever since um, Les Paul and uh, uh, what's his wife's name? Mary Ford. Yeah, um, Mary Ford. I mean, people have known about sort of multi-tracking and over, overdubbing, but he was fooling around with um, um, shadowing his own voice for a long time um because he was the product of 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 um the culture of doo-wop and learned to basically sing all parts of four-part um harmony because he, he just had a great ear um he had toyed with that before when he heard it i don't know i just don't know if 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 this is the first time he ever heard it or not but he he was in an experimental frame of mind when he began doing right. what's going on he and seems also like, yeah he, he seems like kind of a tinkerer by nature he seems like kind of right. a guy who's like in the studio is like oh what can we do in here what can this thing do what can i what kind well, of music can i make with this piece of equipment how can i you know he seems like he's especially around this time of this record he's really looking to push the boundaries like kind of like you know when the beatles are making revolver or something yeah. it's good. But, he, but he i don't even know if he's knowing that he's doing it i think he is just he... based based on his all of his other kind of experiments he gets really into synthesizers he gets really kind of into using the studio but as when he instrument. approaches barry gordy mm. he's approaching him correct me if i'm wrong david but i yeah. believe he's approaching him like you know like head held high look what i have and gordy uh famously calls it the worst thing i ever heard in my life well <laughs> and so uh, then there's a fucking meltdown between the two of them well but then they put out the um single without gordy's permission and the right. single was getting there for it did pretty Martin. well so, yeah yeah but 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 uh going uh back to we were talking about um tinkering because i i i think that is the key to what's going on. He's always tinkering. And Marvin um, 
was a pure recording artist in that he was comfortable in the studio. He was very insecure as a live performer because he really was very insecure about his chops, which is sort of right, incredible. Crazy to think about. Yeah, but, but, true. Step, but, yeah. but he absolutely was a nervous um, wreck as a live performer. But in the studio. Let me ask you a question, David. Just you and he alone in a room. Did he have nervous or secure? No, he was very relaxed. He was very okay. um, regal almost. I mean, he had mm -hmm. he 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 he. Oh, he he had a kind of a aristocracy about him that he had a dignity. He was gracious. He was articulate. He was learned. He was intellectual. He loved. Um, he liked to talk about books and ideas and history. And 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 no, he he was not. But again, that was a, in private relationships. Marvin tended to. Uh, again, wear his uh, heart on his sleeve and talk about his problems. And and um, uh, it was the easiest interview I've ever had. And because it, they weren't even interviews, they were just kind of um, two or three or four hour discussions where, where he would open up his uh, heart. And to a degree, that's what he's doing and what's going on. He's 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 and, and what's also so intriguing about the tinkering is that it begins at a party right where you hear you know don cornelius mm -hmm. is coming in and what's going on everybody's saying what's up and you know and and it's kind of very very relaxed so he's comfortable and that's the way his recording studio was right. in la when i first uh, met him um stevie would come by and rick james would come by and 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 anybody could come and go and and it was it, it was very much like the beginning of what's going on so 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 he starts out by putting himself in the most relaxed frame of mind possible but then the trajectory is i understand the record is from a party to church so mm -hmm. so it's the journey is 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 um basically a spiritual journey and and what becomes a, a very superficial question or i don't superficial but you know rudimentary question of hey what's going on like i say to you what's up becomes a deeply metaphysical question by the time the album, of course, over. of course, Sly Stone had a very specific answer to it. There's a right going on. Let's get a little bit into the the sheer. Obviously, anyone listening to this podcast knows that what's going on is an amazing album. It's one of the classic albums ever made in any genre, um, and the the musical quality of it, the all around total package of the quality of the material from the writing to the arranging to the playing and the singing. Um, the interconnectedness, especially of side one, you know, the, uh, the, the I, I don't, it's kind of don't even really know where to begin, but I one know. place where I will begin, um, you know, this is my only chance I'm ever going to get on the show to talk about this album. So I must talk about um, James Jamerson's playing oh, on no, this. Oh, for sure. No, so no, no. James plays on um, the first five songs. Um, and th this to me is the absolute platonic ideal of flawless bass playing. Yeah. The, my favorite playing of James Jamerson's career, and he's somebody who I've studied his playing. I've tried to deconstruct it. It's really only the first five? 
Yeah, the other, yeah. Uh, the rest of the, uh, from, um, from Mercy, Mercy Me On, it's Bob Babbitt on bass, who is huh. kind of a, another wow. kind of a big name in the Funk Brothers. Okay. But um, Jamerson, I mean, there's a moment on um, What's Happening, Brother. It happens, at, at, it's kind of when the second verse kicks in. It's about 48 seconds in, and I urge you to go listen to it, because the chord sequence there is this kind of complicated, jazzy chord sequence that turns in on itself. It's a really lovely chord sequence. And the lick that James plays underneath that, the way he ties that together and the, the, just the melodic inventiveness of it, um, the counterpoint that he's playing on bass there, it just, I, it never fails to blow me away. Um, you know, he's the ultimate in like tone and note choice and like articulation and his ideas, his sense of rhythm. It's, it's absolute magic. So since that's the only chance I'm going to get to talk about, no, no, and I'm very, I have very, to mention it. Very happy that you did because I do think uh, he's, you know, you think of Jaco Pastorius and Stanley Clark and I mean, you think of all or even Charlie Mingus and, mm -hmm. and I mean, certainly Jamerson is up there. Now you go back through the early Motown hits and Jamerson was always killing it. I mean, he was always yes. putting a hurting on songs coming from a place. It, 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 um, you couldn't even imagine but on this particularly where he he understands that marvin's going for it that, yeah that that marvin is abandoning the traditional um song kind of structure that this is a free wheeling um album that's going to be discursive because jamerson is a dis is a discursive player anyway Right. Um, you also have to um, think of Dave um, uh, Vandepit, who did the charts, because right. the charts amazing. I mean, the charts are are out there, and, and not anything like you would ever hear on a Motown record. Um, exactly, and 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 a lot of the early critical reaction to it was, oh, it's cheesy, and it's a and, and um, I remember Robert um, Chris Cow's review in the uh, Village voice was um you know was kind of pop goopy and and when you listen to it today and of course i don't mind pop goop and i like goopy r&b so that that part didn't bother me at all but it's interesting that you will also hear what's going on today being played on smooth jazz um station you can look at what's going on as an early example of that form if yeah i mean if if by smooth you mean relaxed there's definitely a very accessible yeah, yeah. very relaxed accessible you, you know it's um accessible it's going to make it easy for definitely you. not whitewashed uh but right. it, but it's uh, smooth enough to get some at the time very rough messages down in a way that was not gritty and uh you know um you know like sly sly stuff was like oh god like kind of scary looking but into a shit covered mirror yeah, what's going on is very friendly and inviting and has a, a, well, and it, also i think important to um say it's it is it is transformational in that it transforms his anguish into a kind of a musical joy it 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 yes, it, yeah. it, it is joyful and so that even the most doom and gloom songs like mercy mercy me uh or inner city blues mm -hmm. are 
are easy on the ears. You just want to. My absolute favorite, and the one that just just sucker punches me every time is "Holy, Holy." It's my mm-hmm. favorite. I yeah. love it. And that just lets fly like a really beautiful cloud. I mean, that we could we could really go into every song here, but I, you know. If, I, I feel like anyone who's listening to the show probably really knows this record. Yeah, everybody knows. And it's, every, it's, yeah, if you don't know this record, just turn it off, turn this off. <laughs> and go, just start go listen to yeah, it now. Yeah. Really, every song is, every note of this record is super essential. Um, you know, it's kind of structure of its side ones like a song cycle. The, 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 some of the songs kind of almost repeat and feel and kind of chord change. Side two kind of stretches out a little bit more. Like I said, every note of it's absolutely essential. It's the quintessential five-star record. I like, give it five stars. Joe gives it five stars. Everybody Even in the world. David Ritz, who doesn't believe in stars. <laughs> I don't believe in stars. stars. I just think. I'm just going to assign a rating from you, <laughs> and you have thing to argue of beauty. about it. I think it's a thing of beauty. David gives know, it five stars. It's, it's the greatest thing ever. It I mean, is. it's you know you need it in your life if you don't have it. So. And then the next thing uh, on the docket uh, actually yeah. just came out recently. came out last year in 2021. Funky Nation, the dish, the, the Detroit Instrumentals uh, was recorded during the summer of 1971. It's the result of some downtime that Gay had after he refused to tour in support of what's going on. This is totally awesome, uh, especially in light of uh, the more recent success of Krangbin. Uh, It really is like a dry run for Krangbin. Um, Definitely there's going to be a bunch of tracks that will be uh, plucked onto our playlist, including Help the People, Running from Love, T Stands for Time, and Funky Nation. But uh, I strongly recommend actually listening to the whole thing. It's not just throwaway squiggles. I give it three and a half stars. David Ritz gives it the same. <laughs> <laughs> I gave it the same also, three and a half. You know, I, a couple of players to mention on this. Uh, it's Ray Parker Jr. on guitar. He's, oh, very, yeah. he's very young. I think he's only 17. Had risen up pretty fast through the uh, the scene in the Funk Brothers. Um, plays great on it. I mean, everybody's amazing on this. Uh, Michael Henderson's a bass player. He played with Miles yeah. and with a ton of other people. A great player. These guys are all serious, serious players. And the thing that make that puts it over the top for me, what makes it really sound magical, it's recorded in 1971. Everybody has all the killer tube amps. Everything sounds really vibey. These are great musicians playing with like great taste and like you know great feel. It's a really good funk record, really enjoyable. It's not really like a Marvin record per se. He makes a couple of cameos, but right. um, really fun and really cool for what it is. I think. Right. And then uh, next up is oh, do you like this stuff, Dave? You love it, right? Oh yeah, no, 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 no. I, 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 I'm, I am crazy about it. I, I. It's so good, right? No, no, no. I mean, it's super funky. It's, it's, it's kind of loose. It's, it's engaging. No, I am crazy about it. I guess you're about to go into uh, you're the man. Is yes, that- sir. Why don't you? Yeah. Why don't you take us in? Well, you're the man. I mean, you know, Marvin struggled with what to do next. And and um, he was juggling a bunch of different projects at once. Right? Well, he was juggling a bunch of different projects. But the tradition in R&B is if you have a hit, uh, you um, follow oh. up with a hit that's not terribly unlike your current hit. And, you know, he's a product of that culture. So. You're the man. Um, it happened during the election of who was running in seven, uh, Nixon and McGovern. Yeah, McGovern, and 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 it's it's um, um, I listened to it with great pleasure. Um, I think the groove is great. Um, I think Marvin's confused. I can hear his confusion if I interpret it right. He's not even going to 
he, he, he is challenging all politicians. He's really not taking a stand, which is okay. And he isn't quite sure how to extend this, which is which could have been a cut on what's going on in a certain way. It's certainly coming out of what's going on. It's a politically conscious song, but he doesn't know how to extend it into a full-length story. So it becomes... I think he's an, he's an artist who, for a second in time, thought he was a broadside uh, writer. And so when he realized that, no, it's the, the generic sentiment that's going to make it universal, the specifics yeah. of it just seemed totally beside the point. And I think he was right to, to chuck the project, although well, very interesting and there's a lot of worth in there. It, and also, I think what happens is that... Um, shiny objects two of which are trouble man mm -hmm. uh, and a uh, duet album with diana ross so so um those are two pretty big shiny objects now he had never done a film score before and trouble and trouble man which i think is a um, overlooked and under completely rated work of his is largely instrumental and out there i mean it's 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 a jazz work wait hold on let's stay in the present <laughs> come on <laughs> we'll get to that you one can't I, I love, time like a mobius street. i love that one too I'm, I'm, i've always been a big fan of trouble yeah we're, we're huge fans of that but uh you're the man um, well, the reissue. Okay, so it, it was. Not, it did not come out, and then it was. Um, it was put out in 2019, and yeah. um, with a lot of uh, material. So there's 17 songs on that 2019 release. It was pre probably, I guess, like everything he kind of had going at the time that was a contender, maybe for that record. Yeah. Um, yeah. Some of them are remixes with kind of um, kind of retro modern um, production touches. They had Salam Remy, very talented musician in his own right. Yeah, but but the but before you. Uh, go on. I'm almost sure that your the man was released as a um, single. The single was. Single, the yeah. single was. I'm yeah. talking about the album. Right. Yeah. Right. It just didn't catch on, and yeah. so the single. You're the man as a single. A little bit of a change of pace. It's kind of in right. the you know what's going on is in this like big oceanic lush kind of space. You right. know, uh, you're the man's kind of in this tight kind of funk sort of space. It's a cool song. I, I can. Don't, I don't like the mix. It's. I, I can see. Like the I'll tell you what. I, I can see why it wasn't a smash hit totally, single. Yeah. It's kind of more of an album, like a cool album track kind yeah. of song. Um, yeah. But I do like the tune. Um, this anyway. Getting back to the 2019 release of the You're the Man tracks. Um, this the tracks that were uh, that were kind of worked on by Salam Remy. You know, I initially found them a little bit kind of off-putting because they had those modern touches on them, but they they really yeah, grew. They, I they, love they, them. They grew on me a lot. I love. Them. I, Especially I went back and gave my them, last chance. Yeah, I gave them a second listen. Awesome. And um, I think he did a really nice job with it. I, w I will say that I think it's hysterically funny that what that what was legitimately uh, not a huge aesthetic misstep, just it shouldn't have been the next big project he went into. But instead of instead of owning up to that. What he did was he took the extreme differing politics between himself and Barry Gordy, and he used that as the flashpoint. He became immediately reluctant to, to promote the record or to finish the record, and he blamed it on Barry instead of just you know, shouldering the, the fault for that. Yeah, I think there's a, there was enough songs here to make a good record, I think. I found myself like thinking, thinking oh, you could probably pick the best like seven or eight off this. And what put are your together. favorites? 
I mean, I, I really like uh, Where Are We Going. That one kind of perked up my ears. That would have been good on, like, any, on any record. Try it, you'll like try it. Try it, you'll like it. It's awesome. You know, um, the, the, the all, the, all the Salam Remy songs, I don't know if those were unfinished at the time or if they were brought in kind of, if he was brought David, in David, do you know that? Yeah, they were, um, some of them were incomplete. Um, some of them were uh, uh, retold for the 2019 release. Right. But the bottom line on the whole thing is project abandoned um he didn't give it the attention that was required to make it a real marvin gay project right um and cons and consequently it's hard for us to understand what it could have been or what it would have been had he completely um concentrated on there's a bunch it. of stuff that we're going to pluck off it on our invaluable priceless playlist which we're not charging you a cent for but there's <laughs> one that i want to uh, i really want to underscore here my favorite song on this on this comp is i want to come home for christmas yeah. it, it feels like that uh, it's a yuletide classic but done in a, a what's going on anti-war style and this should have been seen as a classic single i think yeah. yeah, I think there's yeah, there was a good record here. I think like what what David's saying, it was abandoned. It wasn't yeah. finished, but had it been finished, I think that there was a definitely a good record in there. And I'm I'm really thankful that the uh, the 2019 reissue came out. I'm really glad to have those tracks and be able to hear them. Yeah. Kind of fills course, it fills in some course, blanks, I, you know. I mean, I've argued for a long time, and I think ultimately it will happen uh, because of my uh, friend um, Harry uh, Wanger, who is a kind of the Marvin expert and the and archiver and and a scholar at universal uh music but 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 what i hope will happen ultimately is just just as there is every alternative version of everything charlie parker every dick or uh miles there needs to be whatever a a um complete issuing of um everything marvin did with all the alternative versions because every time he went into the studio it was interesting right so this one i give three stars what do you give i gave it three and a half and uh, I, we I know I, david's still on strike <laughs> I, but I, I quite i, I enjoyed I'm it a lot strike. all right he's on strike I mean, still he, we're gonna melt it by 1973 but moving right along 1972 we have the trouble man original soundtrack which joe and i are thoroughly on the same page okay. as okay. david ritz on we talk about it uh, way more often than two grown men of 49 and 50 years of age should. <laughs> it's the soundtrack to a 1972 black exploitation film of the same name. Um, and it's a more, would you say, a more contemporary move. Uh, this is the first album to be written and produced solely by Gay. Um, the only other album recorded under the full creative control of Marvin Gaye uh, was In Our Lifetime, released in 1981. Uh, don't feel similarly about that one. The only other songs, or oh, wow. the only the only we'll get to that. You can fight <laughs> me on that one. No, no, no. But, you, but, but it, it, we need lots of asterisks here. In our lifetime requires hours of your of um, you guys um, expert uh, analysis because there's many many versions. There's an, an there's an earlier version of the album called uh, Love Man. No, we'll get there. Hold Love on, Man. we got to stay in '72. This is going to be we a six-hour show. <laughs> Trust me, we, we will, know that we know but, how the pacing works. If we're in '79 and '72, we're in big no, trouble. No, no, no. We we. <laughs> well, I swear we'll there. get there. I swear we'll get there. Uh, right. Okay. The only other songs where Gay vocalized harmonies or performed lead include Poor Abby Walsh, Cleo's Apartment, Life Is a Gamble, Don't Mess with Mr. T, and There the Goes G. Mr. T. 
right. otherwise it's uh, instrumental and it is fucking great well, this record is kind of, to me, c comparable um, to uh, a couple other records of it around the same time, Curtis Mayfield's Superfly and, um, and Shaft, the Isaac Hayes Shaft. Right. Right. Um, it holds, stands up you know, right shoulder to shoulder with those great records, no problem. Right. Um, I love the, uh, it just has a smoky, kind of hazy, kind of mm -hmm. lush vibe. It's yeah. a little bit like back in the what's going on space um, where it's very lush and just sounds like it's like a cozy, nice sweater to put on. I love the sonics of the album. And, um, you know, the score stuff is super cool. It, it, the, right off the bat when the main theme from Trouble Man part kicks in, it just has a great swagger to it. Um, I've long been a fan of this record. This was always like, I, I distinctly remember like putting this on and walking around the Silver Lake Reservoir and just feeling super cool listening to it. Um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, all the T, the, the T songs kind of have their own kind of palette. Yeah. He's playing, I love all the synth stuff that he plays in there. He's playing with probably some like Mini Moog or Arp Odyssey or something. Um, yeah, these great little funk vamps, really hip arrangements. Um, and the float factor is on 10. Yeah. I mean, just the way it's uh, so atmospherically produced, almost like an ambient record. Very highly listenable. And also, I uh, think most importantly of all, at least from my biographical uh, point of view, is that Marvin takes this movie and really pays no attention to it. I mean, in other <laughs> right. words, he takes the idea of a troubled man and personalizes it and sort of... Uh, marvinize this the, the entire thing so it's among his most autobiographical albums in right. a certain way and 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 it's anguish it is full of anguish and super fly creates characters and and there's sort of a narrative to it right here uh, uh um to me, the score of trouble man when you listen to it independently of the movie is a meditation on trouble it's a meditation on anguish it's a meditation on um the blues um i and haven't actually seen the film have you oh yeah sure you have okay well, i gotta yeah. see it i want to see it now it, it's 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 hard to get through other than you're um listening to uh to uh, Marvin Gaye. Uh, yeah, I guess because uh, out of the three film, you know, it's comparing it to Shaft and Superfly, those are both kind of hit movies, and they're both act those are those other two are actually pretty good movies. Is it as good as Blackula? <laughs> Nothing is as good as Blackula. exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I can't bring myself to see it. So I have to say there are a f there are a few bits on this that are kind of more in the movie score like cue kind of department, and that uh -huh. I, will, I will sometimes find myself skipping to get to the kind of the, the great yeah. funk stuff. But um, yeah. I love this album. Um, solid four stars for me. Yeah, I give it. Uh, I give it uh, three and three quarters is what I wrote. But I'll, <laughs> I'll go quarters. with four. I kind of uh, uh, just 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 to do a little um, uh, um, side trip here. I think the stars. I think the need to give stars and to grade really has a lot to do with our childhood and our school experience. I, I know give that comment two and a quarter it. stars. <laughs> but I mean, what the fuck? I mean, I don't want to go back to school. I mean, no, no, no. This is a different thing. I don't want to grade. I know. I no, know. no, no. So, David, this springs from, to me, a lifelong love of music. So when I was, when I was a kid growing up in New Jersey, uh, all I really had was, we called it the blue, the blue book and the gray book. Okay. The gray book was... Uh, a Rolling Stone book. The Blue Book was the new Rolling Stone record guide. Probably some of which you wrote. 
<laughs> yeah, probably. You, you're probably in there. But my friend Rick and I would yeah. spend three hours a night going through there talking about the stars. And do we agree with this? Have you heard this? Um, this just has to do with a love of music, not about putting things down. No, no, no. I understand. And also, I want to say as as a kid, uh, as a kid um, growing up in uh, Newark, New Jersey in 1953, when I was 10, 54, when I kind of fell in love with jazz and blues, every week I would get um, to Beat magazine and they would have stars. And I, it would kill me if I... Um, and I'd go out and, and I would buy the albums that had that was given the uh, five stars by, you know, Nat um, Hentoff and so on and mm -hmm. so forth. Only later on did I learn that I loved many albums that got one or two stars, but I was too scared to buy the album because I yeah, was so yeah. Well, later, later I became, a, by I, became the a, I became a huge fan of bad music. Yeah. And it's an aesthetic on its own, and so well, I'm glad to hear that. I yeah, am absolutely. You know, you know me, by the way. You know yeah, yeah. that uh, right. I'm not looking to belittle any music right. that I'm. We really only Enough. do uh, episodes we're, of the show of things we kind of love. Yeah, we're <laughs> starved for good music. That's that's what this is all, all right. about. Anyway, Trouble Man's great. By 1974, I'm going to have you convinced that star ratings are the only way to go. <laughs> Trouble Alrighty. Man is fantastic. What do you give it, David? <laughs> he's not, he's. I I think it's a it's it's a great great work of art. Yeah, I love it. Great is four stars out of five. Okay, 1973, <laughs> let's get it on. So I'm going to quote David Ritz. His view oh. of sex was unsettled, tormented, riddled with pain. So let's just give a little context here. So let's get it on. People see it as a, a, a record to conceive children to. Okay, that's the facile view of it. This is a guy who grew up in a very abusive, physically abusive household. Um, and so he became, uh, Marvin became plagued by these sadomasochistic fantasies that are sort of implanted in him by these years of abuse, and there's nothing he can really do about it. Um, David Ritz actually, uh, I love quoting a guy who's sitting at the other end of the line here, but right. <laughs> if the most profound soul songs are prayers in secular dress, Marvin's prayer is to reconcile the ecstasy of his early religious epiphany with a sexual epiphany. I think that's it right there. That's Let's get it on, isn't it? Yeah, and it and and it's also a um, celebration of um, it. What becomes a uh, celebration of his relationship to um, Jan, who he meets while he's recording the album, and it's also because you know you can't think of let's get it on without thinking of what's going on because of the two on. So right. yeah. Now, what's going on, by the way, doesn't have a doesn't have a question mark, which is interesting. Right. It's more of, yeah, interesting. of a kind of a, a kind of a metaphysical declaration. Ultimately, let's get it on doesn't have an exclamation. It mark. should have a question mark, though. <laughs> right. Should have right. That's a five minute. If I made a record called "Let's Get It On," right. I, that would be so that that, that it, would be my pitch at a bar. So that if 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 it's, you know, to to me, the highlight of the album. Okay, whose goddamn phone is that? <laughs> that's oh, just all my, yeah, all I, right. I, that's, I need to turn off something here. That's, I'm um, text coming through. I but just, I just wrapped you on the knuckles the album, with my ruler. <laughs> here you have this um, extremely uh, entuous, um 
song and it becomes the at the time it was i think the um the biggest selling single in the history of uh Motown, which is really um, saying that's, that's, a lot. That, I was going to say, yeah, that's saying I mean, a lot. I mean, that's yeah. really um, saying a lot. But listen to, to how it opens. We're all sensitive people with, with so much to give. I mean, where does that come from? I mean, yeah, right. we, who are the we and, but he's, and, he's scratching his chin, well his chin while he's making love to you. It, it, <laughs> it, it comes out like right up with the very first notes of the record and the single, the title track. It it just has this endless positive kind of. It just makes you feel so good just hearing that 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 first little lick and how open it sounds and the groove and there's like so much space in it and it's it's just a very positive feeling. Especially the you know the, the title track, let's get it on. I mean, it's it it never gets old. It's never it does it always makes you feel great. And and, and you've heard it, it. There's it's one of those songs. Like for example, Stairway to Heaven. For, yeah. As much as I love Led Zeppelin, I honestly never need to hear the song again. I can right. press a button on my brain and hear it. Let's get it on is very different. I've heard it a million times. Every time it sounds awesome. It is completely iconic. Um, and and it never gets tired, which is an interesting uh, thing that you put together there. Yeah. But I'm also that iconic thing wound up being disastrous for him because he became a sex icon, and for a guy as interested in recreational sex as he was, this is not a good thing. Well, I mean, think about it's also really interesting thinking about the sexual energy of this album and like compare him to someone like let's compare him to like how Prince approaches it and then how it sounds like on Let's Get It On. Let's get it on. It has this sort of emotional maturity <laughs> to the sexual energy of it. It has this kind of like, you know, Prince, as much as I love Prince, he kind of comes off a little bit like kind of a sleazeball. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. Songs, it's not like this. It's a very different kind of take and it's great in its own right. You know, but this is, Let's Get It On is a really unique kind of, I, I think it's, we've already kind of hinted at it. It's that melding of the sexuality and the spirituality and the joy in all of it. Yeah. Um, it comes, it's also like compare it to like a, like another record that's that's similar in some way, superficially, like Serge Gainsbourg, Melody Nelson, or something. Mm -hmm. that's, oh, kind, that's, that's similar in a way, but again, that that record is kind of like kind of skeevy. Yeah. <laughs> like what's and going also, on? What's all, going on does not have that feel. Another to it. another apt comparison uh, or apt reason for your Serge Gainsbourg comparison is that they're both. Uh, as long as each other, aren't they? Aren't they, aren't they both like well, confectionary roughly, yeah. length? Yeah, they're both, yeah. Which is kind of the average uh, ability of the, uh, you know, the, that's, the, the that's male. A, that's the length of the average sex that's act. about <laughs> as long as you're going to as you're gonna go if you're the average adult. Um, but the, uh, Another thing that's people, I think, you know, let's get it on, is a lot more kind of uh, like kind of ballad heavy and kind of more lush mm -hmm. than you think it is. Um, it, it's you know, there's there's kind of a lot of great uh, slow jams. This is kind of the birth of the slow jam, really. This is I would say of, "Distant Lover" is my favorite song in the record. Yeah, it's a great song. One. Um, also, you sure love the ball. And I agree with you. I think um, "Distant Lover" is a beautiful ballad. Uh, yeah, so nice. Came for the remainders of his days, it became the highlight of all his live um, shows. You know, the famous show in Oakland where he does it live. Everybody screams their head off at. at at the opening uh at the opening uh notes but it also contains a song 
that has nothing to do with the album and becomes the introduction to an album, which he won't do for another five years. Last track on the album is called Just to Keep You Satisfied. And it's an incredible song in that it's just meanders. It's like a stream of consciousness. Mm -hmm. There's no um, rhyming. There's no verse, verse, chorus, bridge, chorus. He's just... And also, this is a track, correct me if I'm wrong, from 1970 that he did with the originals. Exactly. And he just took out the percussion and rewrote the lyrics to to reflect his crumbling marriage to Anna Gordy, which is, man, talk about a fucking, imagine you're you're making love to your girl or or the species of your choice (laughs) for, for 30 minutes. And as you're ejaculating, you're listening to this guy bemoan his crumbling marriage. Like th- this is where the what the fuck endings to his concept albums start coming in because the end of Here My Dear is also like a, uh, let's just affix a very different ending. Falling in love again, yeah. Right, right. Um, well, it's almost like it's looking to the next thing or something. You know? Right. Like but setting up the next also one. Also making it even more bewildering is the fact that Anna is listed as a co-writer of mm-hmm. the song. Right. The woman who he's telling goodbye to. And when I asked Marvin about that, um, all he told me, oh, she helped out on some of the words. And I really wondered about that. I mean, and 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 so that the song had maybe was originally written with um, another person, another purpose in mm-hmm. mind but here in an album which is fundamentally telling you sex is okay right and it's let's that you sure love the ball and we're gonna have and and at the end of this album he's going to um retrospectively look at the demise of his first marriage this particular i mean i've heard this uh this album many times but this particular time it it struck me as sad because uh you have uh you know uh, eight songs total seven of them uh about the sweet sweet act of making love and then the final song uh, struck me this time as the second he leaves the bedroom his fucking relationship just falls to pieces it struck me as sad um but uh, it, it really is. What can you the Same as uh, what's going on. Let's get it on. It's just iconic. All the bonus stuff on the deluxe edition uh, is incredible, including My Love is Growing. No idea how that did, uh, this didn't yeah, wind up on the record. It's as good as anything else on it. Uh, and Cakes, which is majestic instrumental noodling that could have served as some kind of interstitial track. Uh, but anyway, it was uh, holy shit with those horn lines, too. A bunch of great stuff on that. Uh, Joe, what are your thoughts on Well, before we move on and, and give it the obligatory five stars that it obviously <laughs> commands, um, you know, a couple other, this, the, the song Please Stay Once You Go Away, that's kind of a mid-tempo ballad, and that is some of Marvin's best singing. I mean, it, his, that that's whole song, the, his performance and the performance of the musician, it just like oozes musical integrity. Um, you know, the arrangements, the way these songs are put together, the way they're played, um, meticulous attention to detail. The arrangements are all just perfect and spotless. It's just one of those things where everything clicks and um, everybody is on the same page. Um, you know, another one, uh, Come Get to This, that like this, the swing of that, the groove of that song. It's just, you know, um, you know, and, and another note about Just to Keep You Satisfied. 
Yeah, that's written in the style of what, we, what you call is like through composed, where the like parts don't repeat. There's like not necessarily like a verse, chorus, verse structure. He would kind of use this um, style of writing um, more in the future. And, and here, my dear, there's a lot of things mm-hmm. on it that are through composed. Um, so yes, very interesting style of writing. It's um, got it going on. He's on the total package. This record is easy five stars. Um, amazing. David Ritz thinks so too. Moving on, <laughs> 1973's Diana and Marvin. This is wow. with Diana Ross. Now let's give some context here. Um, right. This is uh, his final uh, duet record. He d- this is his fourth duet partner. He approached it reluctantly because he felt to some degree he was being used by Gordy because right. Diana's career needed a boost and Marvin was... Um, yeah, he's flying high at that point, right, right. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 so. But uh, wasn't he trying to do that with the three duet partners he'd had previous to Diana? Yeah, but he's at a different place now because he's had what's going on and let's get it on. Right. So and the, the latter especially was like monstrous. He's the biggest thing in R and B. You know, he's, he's right. Yeah. And also the um and 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 also what Motown hoped to do is that if you look at Marvin's earlier duet career as you well know the culmination is the tammy terrell duets which were huge hits yeah much much uh bigger than the uh mary wells and the kim uh weston songs. and so truly great hoping... truly great records too and yeah, they were the tammy oh, terrell oh, no i mean the, i mean the um tammy and marvin duets are, are 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 gorgeous but but they were hoping to recreate a marvin tammy with marvin Diana and Marvin had a lot of doubts about going back to that. And also he wasn't going to produce the album. Right. I mean, he he uh, he was given all the songs. She was pregnant. Um, and he uh, was smoking tons of weed in the studio and they started off at loggerheads. Right. And she wouldn't want to be in the studio with him at the same time because she was pregnant. So um, it was done under, you know, there's a lot of tension, a lot of re reluctance on his part and yet go ahead guys well i'll say this about it diana ross of course is a legendary singer she's she's Uh she's purely magic um they didn't cut a lot of these vocals at the same time so and it kind of sounds like that a little bit at times it doesn't have the same kind of chemistry that he had with tammy terrell where you really get the feeling that they're singing to each other and kind of tailoring their performances together. It's probably and even some of those were recorded yeah. separately, but you don't. But you get, get the feeling. but yeah, you, right. they had a certain kind of chemistry that I don't really feel like he has with with right. Diana. There's still a really there's some good stuff on this for sure. Some of it is a little bit more, you know, where it's surrounded by all these other records that have this this incredible like amazing sound <laughs> and production. Yeah. This one's kind of more like an assembly line kind of like you know really kind of normal Motown record. Um, you know, you probably shouldn't really hold that against it. There's, you know, I'd it's say also I, front loaded just like right. an old Motown. Yeah, style, I like about style. half of it. I think half of it's pretty mm-hmm. strong. That's um, fair. However, however, the end of side one. The old Don Roby song, Pledging My Love. Marvin's vocal is as great as he's ever sung in his entire life. The one that blows me away is the next one, because Just Say, Just Say, that is uh, the final Ashford and Simpson Motown yeah. production. And it sounds, like, it sounds like they're very cognizant of that. It's a very haunting uh, uh, almost psychologically haunting ballad. Uh, That's the least high point. Yeah, it's it's the least commercial thing on the record, and probably yeah. and the most interesting. It is the most interesting, but the, it's it really is front loaded. You are everything. Love twins and don't knock my love are the three first songs out of the gate, and yeah. the only other song, you know, we've talked about all the rest of them that you frankly need to hear. As far as I'm concerned, uh, as far as a 
uh, a crucial Marvin record to hear. I would put this somewhere in the middle. I'd give it three stars. Mainly their voices sound fucking awesome together. That's the main thing about the record. Yeah, they're both great singers, and um, they they have they, you know a lot of good material. The, the You Are Everything, that's a really great pop song, yeah, yeah. and they knocked that one out of the park. And um, I do like um, the, the, the uh, Include Me in Your Life, the closer. That one, the, I like their performance in that. That one sounds like they're kind of singing together more. I wonder if they were both in the studio that day. I, also, I gave this a same. I gave this three. It's definitely... Um, you know, I think for what it is, it it, it, it fits the bill. Um, they were, you know, Motown's looking for big hits. You know, looking, they want they you can kind of get the feeling that they want every song to be a single, and they're approaching it <laughs> yeah, that way. Yeah. Um, so it feels like that more so than an album. Obviously, this isn't really like an album kind of feel type of record, but there are some gems on it, and um, I, I recommend about half of it. So responding to demand from uh, from fans and from the record company, uh, his first four his first tour in four years starts. Uh, at the Oakland Alameda County Coliseum on January 4th, 1974. We are finally out of 71 to 73. This guy did not stop making music in those years. Uh, so the performance received a lot of acclaim, and there was a live single of Distant Lover, and Marvin Gaye Live came out, um, which would, it would be his only release uh, during his sabbatical period in the mid-70s. I don't know if it was conscious. But with a recording contract with Motown Tamla that has been renewed, uh, and with a recording studio that he builds for himself at his home, we are now at a vantage point, or should we say he is more at a vantage point, to be able to see how he's going to proceed with the remainder of his decade. This, ladies and gentlemen, is where the rubber hits the road, and all of the time that David Britz spent with Marvin Gaye is going to be discussed in a way that can only be described as Zapruder-like. In the meantime, keep the finger that is your uh, pointer of choice for selecting podcasts, nice, firm, and supple, so that you can play Marvin Gaye Part 3 on Discography. See you soon.